John chapter 10, beginning at verse 22. Hear the word of God. Now, it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. And then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. And neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. I and the Father... Excuse me. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered and said, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you being a man make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods, to whom the word came, the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me, and I in him. Therefore, they sought against to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first. And there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. And many believed in him there. Amen. Jesus here in this chapter began by declaring that he is the true shepherd, the true shepherd of the sheep. All of this, this entire discourse really revolves around Jesus healing a man who was born blind. That began back in chapter 9 when Jesus declared to the Jews, I am the light of the world. And now, in this chapter, Jesus has been declaring to them that he is the good shepherd, repeatedly. As the scene shifts, beginning in verse 22, um, we have the setting and the occasion for this discussion that's going to happen. And uh, if we wanted really just to boil down this, the, 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 get the main idea here of what Jesus is talking about is the unity 
of essence with the Father. And uh, we'll, we'll get to exactly what I mean by that. But that's what he's talking about. He's, he's focusing upon the unity of his essence with his Father. And that is expressed or it's, it's seen in the unity of his work with the Father. He's made these kinds of statements before in the Gospel of John. We'll take a look at some of those places. But here in particular now, let's look at the setting and the occasion. The setting and the occasion for this discourse is now the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem. And I want to just read to you a little bit of a description of what's going on here. What is the Feast of Dedication? The Feast of Dedication is uh, nowhere in our Bibles besides here. But this is actually a very important uh, holiday for Jewish people. This feast celebrated the rededication of the temple during the time of the Maccabees. It is also known as Hanukkah, or the Feast of Lights. The rededicating of the temple, Judas, Maccabeus, and his brothers first cleansed the sanctuary and removed the pagan altar. So basically, what Antiochus Epiphanes had done he was a Seleucid king, was desecrated the temple by offering a pig on the altar. And what Judas Maccabeus, and if you know, if maybe if you grew up Catholic or if you've read a Bible with an apocrypha, you've read of, uh, you've heard of First and Second Maccabees. Those books, they're apocryphal books, so they're not inspired books, but they do record certain portions of Jewish history. They can be informative for understanding some of the things that happened in the New Testament, particularly here, this Feast of Dedication. They build a new altar, along with fashioning new vessels and lampstands that lit up the refurbished temple. This, so this temple is also called the Feast of Lights because they would light up the entire temple. And because of where the temple is situated, it, it would just be this glowing light on a hill. Beautiful. And, and, but now think, right? So it's the Feast of Dedication and the temple is lit up and the light of the world is now in the temple also. They placed bread on the table and hung the curtains and separated the Holy of Holies from the outer temple. Thus they, the Maccabean brothers, finished all the work they had undertaken. The next morning, December 14th, 164 BC, by present day reckoning, they offered sacrifices and the new altar with festive music. All the people bowed and worshipped and thanked God for prospering them. So they celebrated the dedication of the altar for eight days and offered burnt offerings with gladness. They offered a sacrifice of deliverance and praise. So this is where the feast of dedication comes from. It's actually a celebration of the rededication of the temple after it had been desecrated by Seleucid rulers. So it's during this time, during the, end, in, during the winter, that Jesus is now walking in Solomon's porch. Solomon's porch isn't part of the temple. It's sort of part of the temple precinct, and it is connected to it. Uh, but this is where Jesus is. So you have the holiday. You have the time of the year. And now you have the people. And listen to what they say to Jesus. How long... 
Do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Uh, literally, uh, the, the question is, how long do you take away our life? It, it's, it's a complaint, really. It's not a valid question. Uh, the people continue with the same theme that Jesus has been dealing with, uh, this hostility, hostility towards his mission, hostility towards who he is. How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And this, again, this is a veiled complaint. They didn't really want to come to Christ. They didn't really want to believe in Christ. Christ had uh, 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 often invited the people to come to him. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, he says to them, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So he had made these statements repeatedly to the people. But they were unwilling to come to the Lord Jesus because he wasn't what they were looking for. Yet, to a Samaritan woman, listen to what Jesus says plainly in John 4. He's not even a Jew. And in John 4, beginning at verse 24, in his discussion with her, the woman says to Jesus, I know, in verse 25, excuse me, the woman says to Jesus, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus had no issue revealing himself to, to those who were earnestly seeking to know who he was. Look back at verse 9. And verse 35, so you have a Samaritan woman. And if you remember, you know your Bibles a little bit. There, there was uh, a lot of tension between the Samaritans and the Jews. Uh, the Jews, uh, excuse me, the Samaritans, even today, they still exist. And they have their own form and style of worship, very different from the Jewish people. And they only use the Pentateuch in their worship. But they were hated by the Jews. Jesus reveals himself to her. Now in John chapter 9... After the blind man is cast out, basically he's no longer part of the, the synagogue, no longer part of the community. In John 9, 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, very fitting, of course, here, that this lost sheep is now cast out by the Jewish leaders. And the good shepherd, who we're going to hear about in John chapter 10, then comes and he's looking for this lost sheep. When he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? And the blind man answers and says, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. So Jesus had no issue and telling people, when, the, when there was an earnest request or desire to know who he was, Jesus had no issue telling them, I'm the Christ. I am the Son of God. Yet, when he's dealing with the uh, religious hypocrites of his day, Jesus really doesn't give them the time of day when it comes to these kinds of questions. He really gets to the point with them. They don't really want to know who Jesus is. And that's the problem. They want to remain in doubt and unbelief. 
They are, as one author puts it, they voluntarily shut their eyes. They don't want to see the light of the world. Because if they truly paid attention to what Jesus was doing and what Jesus was saying, they would have to respond. We can't avoid, in this world, this kind of a trickery and slander by wicked men. Jesus couldn't avoid it. But we can be, as Jesus says, uh, wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And this is the way that Jesus chose to respond and deal with these um, Jewish leaders. The issue with them is they have no need for a savior. They've come to the place where they believe that based upon their own merit, based upon their own religiosity, that they will be accepted by God. And all Jesus is doing is adding, he's adding difficulty, layers of complexity to their man-made religion. Unless motivated by a true sense of helplessness, all our speculations about Jesus are just that. They're just empty speculations. And that's what these people had. They were, it was the, the excitement of this man who was a, such a contrasting figure and the things that he was doing that drew these crowds. But these weren't sincere questions. And as Christian people, Christian people, we have to be wise to these kinds of things. Let me illustrate it this way. Let's say, let's say you owned a, a bike shop, right? And you had a fellow or a lady who walked in every day to talk to you about bikes, all kinds of bikes, whatever bike you had. If you were fixing a mountain bike, they wanted to talk to you about mountain bikes or all kinds of, right? All kinds of questions. They talk to you about bikes. But they never bring their bike in. And uh, you've never even seen him ride a bike. You see the guy walking everywhere. He's on horseback. He's driving his truck, but he never has a bicycle. What would you think he's doing? Entertaining himself. Just empty speculation. He's maybe just interested in bicycles, but there's no real... Empty speculation about God and God's words and God's works doesn't mean you actually believe the Bible or God. Now, there are tons of people who have, I mean, they'll talk to you for hours, right? Like Mr. Talkative in Pilgrim's Progress. They'll talk to you about, you know, they'll talk to you about doctrine and life and practice and all of these things. You know, have great conversations, ask interesting questions. But at the end of the day, they don't actually believe. So Jesus is cryptic with these people. What do I mean by that? He's not straightforward. He, and he does this on purpose. So listen to what he says. I told you, and you do not believe. The, and, but this is what he told them. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. That's what he told them. So they asked him if he's the Messiah, and what's the point that Jesus makes? Repeatedly. Jesus has told them, look at the works that I'm doing. Pay attention to what I've done. He says, he does this in John 5. In John chapter 5, 
he makes this statement that causes the Jews to want to kill him. In John 5.16. For this reason, John 5.16, for this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him. Because he had done these things on the Sabbath, he healed a man who was uh, lame. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. <coughs> the answer that they want, well, uh, what they are saying they're asking for is, uh, uh, Jesus, tell me straight, are you the Christ? Like he did to the uh, woman from Samaria. I'm the Christ. He tells her. He does to the blind man. I am the son of God. They want, tell me you're the son of God. But what does Jesus do instead? Jesus uses this cryptic language and what he says is uh, basically what the father does, I do. You want to know if I'm God? What the father does? That's what I do. There's this, and this is what I talked about, the unity of work. What's one of the ways that we can know that Jesus is God? Because only Jesus can do and has done what God does. Therefore, that unity of work points to a unity of essence. Or, uh, you know, just to use you know, a 25-cent phrase, the doctrine of inseparable operations. The external works of the Trinity are undivided. So what the Son does, the Father does, and the Spirit does also. So for example, but this is not always one-to-one, -one, right? So you have statements in the Bible like this one. And, and uh, there's this truth in the scripture about divine appropriation or the doctrine of the appropriations. So listen to this. Jesus can say in Matthew 24, 36, but of the day and the hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Why is it that Jesus can say something like that? He doesn't know something the Father's know. No, this has to do with his particular mission. There's also the doctrine of divine missions. And Christ came into the world for a particular purpose, and it was to reveal to man who God is. And that's what he's doing. How? By means of his works. By means of his works. Yet, the problem that the Jews are having is that they're blind. Remember Jesus' statement at the end of chapter 9. Verse 39 now. For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Could the Jews see the works that Jesus was doing? Yeah, absolutely they could. But they were blind spiritually. So the works had no significance. It didn't mean anything. There was no power in it. And for many today who read the scripture, maybe they sit under sound preaching, and they know the works that Christ has done, uh, uh, even, even maybe superficially. Uh, he fed the 5,000. They know that Jesus has done those things, but there's no significance 
to the work that Christ has done because they're spiritually blind. And now this is the point that Jesus gets to with them. So you have this issue of the unity of work and the unity of essence. And that's what Jesus points to. Uh, when Jesus is having a discussion with somebody and they ask him who he is, you know what he goes to? Theology. And Jesus starts to talk theology with people. Well, I, you want to know from God? I, I do what God does. Of course I'm God. Verse 25, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but you do not believe. Why? Because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. What's the issue? They're, they are, uh, as we talked about during our Sunday school class, they're unwilling and they're unable My sheep, hear my voice. This is, um, you know, th this is uh, this is not the way that we're we're taught to uh, discuss the truths about God with unbelievers. By most, this is not the way that we would talk to people. But this is the way that Jesus chooses to speak. Why? Because Jesus is unveiling, as it were, what's wrong with the crowd that he's addressing. Jesus gets to the issue at hand. My sheep hear my voice. Why is it that these men and women, these crowds who are, who are uh, having this difficulty trying to discover who Jesus is, what's the problem? Well, they can't hear. They don't have ears to hear. It's a problem with many today. I know them, and they follow me. He's picking up on the discussion he was having uh, previously with them, that he is the good shepherd. It's the same language that he used. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. And ultimately, that is the issue. Why is it that there are people who can go to church for 30, 40 years, and have not the smallest signs of grace in their life. Because they do not have eternal life. They have not come to Christ with that specific need in hand. Now people come to Jesus, uh, to Jesus fix my life. Right, my, my marriage is bad. My kids are bad. I'm bad. Fix my problems. My finances are in shambles or whatever. You know, th thousands. There are thousands of reasons why people come to Christ. But the, the issue that really matters is n rarely ever the one you hear. When you talk to people, uh, visitors for the first time, they come to church and Maybe they've never been in a church and you ask them why they come. It's rare the occasion that you hear someone say, because I need eternal life. And this is the issue. Uh, so, it's one of the texts that we looked at during uh, Sunday school. It's in Titus chapter 3. Listen to the way that Paul 
addresses this particular issue. In Titus chapter 3, Paul is speaking to Pastor Titus, and he reminds him of something. He wants, he wants to remind uh, him of something. Verse 3, chapter 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another, Paul has this absolutely clear perspective about who he was and who Titus was, even. It's it's very clear in his mind that this is who we were. We were dead in trespasses and sins. That is ultimately the issue. Uh, And and men don't come to Christ and and, uh, plead with him in light of these kinds of passages. Lord, I'm a foolish, disobedient, deceived. I'm serving uh, every lust that arises in my heart. It becomes my master and I'm subject to it. And it exercises this crippling power where I, I could barely do the things that God would have me to do. Living it, I live in malice. I'm always angry and I'm always coveting, and I don't like anybody. Men rarely come to God that way. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done. You see, the, the goodness and the kindness of God doesn't come to us because we make Him give it to us. Not because I pray and I, I memorized my Bible and I kind of I used I prop up the Bible and I use it as a ladder and I work right to climb all the way into heaven. No. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. And here it is, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the new birth. So so listen to what Jesus said in John John 10. If they had ears to hear, if, if they had ears to hear what Jesus is saying, he says, and I give them eternal life. Who is the only person who can give people eternal life? Well, it has to be God. And they're, and they're standing there asking him, look, tell us who you are. Jesus, maybe he could have said, um, I created the world in six literal days. Tell us who you are, Jesus. I'm the source of eternal life. Tell us who you are, Jesus. He's telling them, but they don't want to hear. Because what they need, they're not coming to him for that. And that is a great problem that we have even down to this very day. That what men have the greatest need for, they don't seek God for that. And they shall never perish. And neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. What, listen to the, the, lever, the levels of comfort for the believer as he's rebuking these Jews. Just keep climbing. right? So first, uh, this gift that I need, the gift of eternal life, Jesus says, I give it. But not only do I give that gift, it can never be taken away once I give it to someone. 
They shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. He, he's doing this cryptic, uh, you know, uh, thing with them again here. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. What, what, what's he saying there? You can't take them out of Christ's hand. You can't take them out of the Father's hand. Not because there's some kind of confusion where Jesus and the Father are the same person. No, there's this unity of, of essence. And that unity of essence, they are, they are divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Because there's this unity of essence, they work together. I and the Father, and literally, most of your Bibles say, all of your, I'm going to venture to say, all of your Bibles say, I and the Father, or my Father, I and my Father are one. But really, this says, I and my Father, we are one. Because it's two persons. There's two persons in one essence. The divine essence. And, uh, you know, that divine essence is not shared like a piece of pie. It's not like a circle. And Jesus has this corner, and the Father has this corner. It doesn't work like that. The doctrine of the Trinity is a mystery uh, in the sense that we can't uh, engineer it. We can't draw graphs and charts and, and do those kinds of things with it. But it's clearly taught in the Bible that there is one true and living God, and that one true and living God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's no confusion between the three. There's no um, mixture of them, some weird kind of creature. No. The divine essence is three persons. And uh, I think John Owen said, uh, he said, this is not verbatim, but John Owen says, uh, I am not, I'm not commanded to understand but I'm drawn to worship. And when Jesus talks this way, that's what we should do. Now, so, so first you have the setting and this focus upon the unity of work, what Jesus does and the Father does, what the Father does, Jesus does, because it points to the unity of essence. Why is Jesus talking this way? Jesus, in a cryptic way, is telling them, I'm God. That's what the point of this entire passage is. That's what his focus is. So then what happens? How, how do they respond now? Look at their response. Then the Jews took up stones to stone him again. Do you think they had an, do you think that was an honest question? They really wanted to know who Jesus was? No. They were already offended. They were looking for more reasons now to kill him. Then the Jews took up stones to stone him, verse 31. Jesus answered, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? Right? What, what does he go back to? He goes back to the issue at hand. Since, since they are spiritually blind, maybe seeing physical works will compel them to believe that I'm the Christ. But no. F physical... Uh, uh, um, when we get back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and I, and I uh, unpack the fact that there aren't miracle workers walking around today, right? 
that's just not that's that's a, a uh, maybe uh, uh, the sanctified imagination of some uh, maybe deceived Christian people, but the majority of people who talk that way, their miracles, their prophets, that kind of stuff, those are a lot of those people are just religious salesmen. And that's just a bunch of junk, to put it technically. <clears throat> because miracles and performing miracles doesn't save people. If, if, if that were the case, everybody who saw Jesus do a miracle, which was hundreds of, maybe let's, let's dumb down the number, maybe hundreds of thousands, I'll go with the big number. Hundreds of thousands of people saw Jesus do miracles. He did all kinds of miracles. He raised people from the dead. And, and, and listen to this, we'll get there in John chapter 11. He raises Lazarus from the dead, and the Jews want to kill Lazarus. Why? Because, you see, it's um, the work itself, the miracles, don't, don't save people. Jesus saves people. You know, what we, you hear people talk like this too, but I just really need a miracle. No, you need to be converted. That's what you need. You need conversion. You don't need miracles. Anyway, so now the Jews. So Jesus says to them, here's their response. So you have the opening setting. You have Jesus explaining that uh, there's this unity of work between him and the Father. In essence, by doing that, he's declaring to them that he is God. I do the things that God does. And this is how the Jews respond. We're going to kill you. They say, for a good work, we do not stone you. But for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. You know, if you're a Jehovah's Witness, this is this, you know, you may want to cross this out of your Bibles. Because the Jews understood exactly what Jesus was saying. And here, this highlights their hypocrisy. Who are you? Well, I do what God does. So you're saying you're God? We're going to kill you then. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. It just highlights their hypocrisy. They did not want to believe. That is the issue at hand. We will not have this man rule over us, is what they say to Pontius Pilate. Let his blood be upon us and our children. We refuse to believe in him. And that's the disposition of every person today who refuses to bow the knee to Christ. We will not have this man rule over us. We don't care how nice he is. We don't care how pretty you paint him in your pictures. We want nothing to do with this man, Jesus. But don't look, look at what Jesus does. So, they, so they, they say, you're committing blasphemy, right? You're in, so maybe the third commandment, right? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for, the God, for God will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So what does Jesus do? Jesus goes to the scriptures. Listen to this. Jesus answered them in verse 34. Jesus answered them. 1034. Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken... Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, 
I am the son of God. Um, the text that he's citing is in Psalm 82. Turn there so you can understand um, the point that Jesus is getting at here. In Psalm 82, the Lord is talking to, um, to the Jewish leaders. And it's a short psalm. I'll read the eight verses so you can understand the, the, the discussion that Jesus is having here. Uh, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. Literally there, that is the word for Elohim. Right? So the strong ones. He judges among the gods. And that word can mean judges. You can translate that Hebrew word that way, judges. How long will you judge unjustly? And, and you see it there. You see the uh, verb form there for the word in verse 1, judges, uh, excuse me, gods or judges. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? So he's talking to the religious leaders. Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and the needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. I said, you are gods. And all, uh, uh, excuse me, and all of you are children of the Most High. But you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. Well, so what's going on in this passage? Well, very simply, God is using these titles and these descriptions to describe his people and particularly those who were in position of authority. So he uses this language, um, not literally, but in a figurative sense to speak of their authority, the, the power that they had. Verse 8, God is the one who judges the earth. So if God gives to man the authority to judge, okay, of course, under his rule on earth, it's not unjust for God to use this kind of language to speak about those who are exercising an authority like God. And if you, th and if you think enough, you understand that what Jesus has been doing is he's been using this concept that's in Psalm 82 to talk to the Jewish leaders. And they should have been able to pick it right away, pick it up right away. Well, uh, yeah, in Psalm 82, God called us to the function of judging because he's the judge of all the earth. And when he rebukes us for being unfaithful, he calls us gods. Not because we are gods, but because of the function because of what we're doing. So when Jesus picks up this text, it's not like a coincidence. It's not that they stumped Jesus and he was like, oh, where in my Bible could I go to defend what I just said to these people? No, he's been speaking in these categories all the time. So for example, uh, um, do you know that last names, American last names primarily, are attached to vocations, callings, or uh, 
careers, right? So sometimes you'll have a guy whose last name is Smith. You know why? Probably a blacksmith somewhere in generations. Or Weber was a person who wove things together. With Jew, Jewish people, you get this sometimes too. You have a last name like Cohen. And generally, um, Cohen is the word for priest. So some folks who are Jewish who have that last name Cohen, there may be some kind of connection back to the priesthood. Maybe, maybe not. But uh, so, so that the last name, right, uh, is related or connected to the vocation, to the calling that you have. So the reason why God calls them gods in the Old Testament is not because they're gods, but because they had a particular function to judge and to rule over the people justly, fairly, and they weren't doing it. So when Jesus picks this up in John 10, what has he been telling them all along? I'm the son of God because I do those things God does. Only I can do those things that God does. So then he uses this really to rebuke them. Is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom, do you say of him whom the word of God came? Uh, whom, excuse me. Do you say of him whom the father sanctified and sent in the world? You are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. John 10, 36. If I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. And here's the issue, right? If I do not do what the father sent me into the world to do, you have no reason to believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe the father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And here you have a picture of unbelief. For every person who's sitting here today who, who, is, uh, who is not a Christian, uh, this is one of one in the Gospel of John there are hundreds Christ has proven and shown often through, uh, in the scriptures, particularly in the gospels, and in the gospel of John, that he does what God does because he is the son of God. So the issue that men have is not that we need a sign, like I said before, but our greatest need is eternal life. That is the issue at hand. And that ought to be the thing that we are praying for, for our friends and family members, our children who aren't Christian, is that they would see their need for eternal life and that they would cry out for Christ to save them. But not only that, for those of us who are Christians, there should be a great deal of gratitude for the grace of God in redeeming us from our blindness and from our deadness. So brothers and sisters, in light of these things, let's uh, pray together, and then we'll stand and sing the doxology. Let's uh, pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you 
Lord, for the uh, measure of strength that you've uh, given, given me uh, today uh, to preach your word. Lord, what a, um, well, how frail uh, we, we truly are. I've, I've experienced that weakness uh, the past uh, three weeks, and um, I'm just thankful for um, the recovery of, of my health, even if it's uh, been partial. Lord, and I thank you for uh, those who are here this morning and for the attention that they've given to your word. I pray that these things would not fall on deaf ears, but that uh, the folks who are here this morning, that they would uh, see that uh, Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Savior of the world, and that he alone is the source of eternal life. May you help those of us who believe in Christ to continue uh, to trust in him, and those who are here who do not believe in him, that they would turn from their sin and believe in him. In his name we pray. Amen.